Now it's time for the Disney View podcast. Please move across your car to make room for everyone. Our podcast will begin momentarily. Join Dave as he makes his grand circle tour around the Walt Disney World Resort. Dave is a dreamer and an engineer who enjoys the magic and wonder of it all, but understands Disney's place in history and respects the legacy that's been left. Come along and hear Dave's thoughts about Walt Disney World and see it through Dave's eyes. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, manténganse alejado del David. And now, here's your host. Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. Well, I hope everyone's having a great summer and you're finding some fun things to do. Maybe you made it down down to the Walt Disney World Resort or over to Disneyland, but hopefully you're finding something fun and kind of enjoying yourself. Now, as for me, I took a summer vacation and I went up, took the family up, and we went to this Great Smoky Mountains and visited the National Park and then went over to um, Asheville and uh, went into the uh, Biltmore Hotel and so forth as we were up there. And I got to tell you, I had a great time. And it's funny because one of the things I always do is I think to myself, how can I relate this back to Disney? And I have to be honest, when I started this trip, I was thinking, well, I'm not going to be able to relate this to Disney. I don't see any way that this all this trip relates to Disney. And then it turned out that, well, in fact, it really did. And it starts with, we stayed in Pigeon Forge. And Pigeon Forge is on the sort of the southeastern side of the Great Smoky Mountain National Park. And um, it's uh, turns out that it has a feel to it. It's sort of that early 70s roadside attraction sort of thing going on there. It's like stuck in time. And it reminded me very much of what US 192 used to look like in Kissimmee. When you get off the turnpike and take US 192 to head to the Magic Kingdom, because that was the only park at the time, you would cross through this place that was like this cornucopia. It was this amazing sort of sight and sound thing. The roadside attractions, the giant orange uh, that you had there. You had all the hotels with all their signs up. You had lots of kitschy kind of stores, lots of shops, you know, roadside attractions, you know, the Cypress Clocks, all that stuff was there along 192. And it was there in Pigeon Forge too, in a similar way, maybe a little bit different, but similar kind of thing that was going on there where you felt like you were in the same kind of place. It was almost crazy because uh, it really made me feel like I was uh, back in back 40 years beforehand um, down in, uh, in Florida. But it was interesting, and it was really kind of neat. And then the national parks themselves. And if you've never visited a national park, I highly recommend it. There are some tremendous places in this country that are in their original sort of state. Um, we've maintained them as something that's just beautiful. I've been to several now. Um, we try, My family, we try to make a, a trip to a national park every so often. We've been to, I think, six national parks and several of the um, national uh, preserves that are that are around, whether it's the U.S. Forest Service that maintains it or whether it's um, a parks, uh, not a national park, but a park service um, site. We've been to a lot of them, and they're always interesting. And it really is great to kind of go back to what makes America great. You know, all the things that we have in this country that make us really interesting, and you can some of that is some of that history is preserved to a large degree. And it's really pretty neat to be able to stand there and look at it and its its majesty. And they've done a great job with, you know, paving the roads and giving you the best views and the, the best things. It was part of a public works project that came out um, during the uh, FDR administration coming off, off of the uh, Great Depression. And it's really pretty neat that uh, we have these things here. And uh, they're great treasures. And I highly recommend looking into them. And they relate back to Disney, too, in their own way. 
one of the interesting things that happened was Walt Disney himself was a great proponent of preserving our natural beauty in this in this nation. And uh, he, he was a big fan of the national parks in his own right. Um, and there was something that he put out in, I think it was 1958. Um, there was a group of um, rangers, park rangers, who put together songs of the national parks. And uh, the Walt Disney uh, Records actually put it out. And uh, Walt Disney himself was involved in this, as I understand it. It was uh, Stan Jones and the Ranger Project, um, the Ranger Chorus, go out and they sing songs about our, our great national parks. And it, this was available. It's, the album is still available. I believe it's now digitized. But it came out in 1958. And it's one of those things that's just sort of neat. It kind of sums up in a way what Disney felt about the entirety of the, uh, the land that we have here that was, that was preserved as national parks. So I find that kind of interesting and intriguing in its own way. Then there was this other interesting tie-in. Um, up at the Biltmore Estate, and this was, uh, uh, what was his name? Um, now I've forgotten his first name, um, uh, um, uh, Van Vanderbilt. Um, it was the father, the, the one who started the, uh, the whole organization, started the whole thing. He became a uh, billionaire or I guess millionaire at the time. And he had um, he put together this, this estate that was up in uh, just outside of Asheville. And it's this beautiful piece of property. And one of the things about it was he landscaped the heck out of it. And how did he do that? Well, he hired an architect to do the architecture of the house, but he also hired F.L. Olmsted to come in and do the, um, the landscaping for it. Now, Olmsted is also known as the guy who created Central Park. And it's kind of interesting that he brought him in to do this, this, um, these acres of land that he had there. And the U.S. Forest Service got its first training and its first organization as a part of the land that um, Olmsted had set aside to help um, set up this this uh, understanding of our uh, our nation's great resources and under getting the Forest Service started. So there's an interesting connection there too. But why I mention it is Olmsted, uh, his first job working in the, in the field of actually designing uh, some sort of gardens was at the Chicago World's Fair in about, I guess that would have been in the early 1920s or so, or 1910, somewhere in that range. But he did, he did the... Um, Maybe it was even earlier than that now that I think about it. Um, <clears throat> he was up there and he did the, uh, the World's Fair. He did a garden exhibit there. Now, he had never really done gardening. He was kind of a failed farmer and he was a journalist. But somehow or other, through some connection, he figured out a way to, to work his way into actually creating this garden there. And to be honest, from what I've read about it, it seemed fairly fictitious. He created a garden that looked beautiful, but really hid all of the things that he did to make it look beautiful. So it wasn't a naturally occurring sort of beautiful thing. It was just something he created and it got renowned. And one of the people who saw it when he went to the Chicago World's Fair was Elias Disney, Walt's father. And he, he reportedly came home and told his kids about this great garden he saw and how amazing it was. And that inspired Walt to some degree. And Walt Disney, when he created his own vistas and his own things where he was creating all these imaginary landscapes uh, in Disneyland and later when he planned for Disney World, he was creating these things that were um, sort of enormously fictitious, right? And they were hiding some of the, uh, some of the, fa the faults and some of the things that were there because what you saw was beautiful, but you didn't see what was happening behind the scenes because it was kind of hidden. And there was some uh, reporters and different people along the way who compared Olmsted to Disney in the sense of being able to create something that had a beautiful visage, but didn't necessarily recreate anything, right? It wasn't necessarily helping anything. It's beautiful, but it hides the faults and it's really a sort of a fictitious thing that's put on. These are not naturally indigenous plants to this area. 
These are not the things that you would expect to see in this, in this sort of environment. It's not naturally occurring, but it looks beautiful. So there's an interesting connection there. I just thought that was kind of, kind of funny as I stood there and um, looked through all of these things and started to read up on Olmsted a little more. I was like, wow, there's an interesting connection to Walt Disney and sort of his belief in uh, some of the things that were going on there. Now, there was another story that, uh, that caught my attention. There was a Disney designer. Um, he had been a, uh, uh, let's see, he was one of the Imagineers. It was Bob Berenick. And um, he had in mind to create a, uh, a theme park in uh, near the Chapel Hill area. So that's a little bit further east in North Carolina. That was called the Whirligig Woods. And uh, what he wanted to do was create something that was um, something that was sort of theme park-like. He was an Imagineer. He had worked for Walt. And he wanted to do something that was kind of unique in that sense, where it was kind of fun. And uh, he wanted to have a high-quality family experience in North Carolina. Um, so he wanted, to, he wanted to build something. He bought, what did I say, 21 acres? And he had this idea for building it. And unfortunately, he ran out of money and couldn't get additional funds to keep building it. So he decided to um, uh, go back to not building it. And actually, I think at the end of the day, he was... Um, he wanted to protect the natural landscape, so he held onto the property and then uh, just actually kept it kept it uh, privately owned. But he had this idea for building something that was sort of Disney-like. He actually said at one point, we're not building Disney World, but we're putting that kind of effort and quality into it. So another interesting kind of minor connection there, that there was this intent to build something like a Disney World in the eastern part of North Carolina, you know, where the Smoky Mountains are more western because they border on Tennessee. But it's just fascinating to me how these things all connect together. They're all kind of connected. All these stories and all these things are interconnected. When you realize just how closely tied Disney is to all these things, it's really kind of fascinating in its own way. You know, and you have to remember that Walt Disney really was into the idea of um, urban planning. He had all these fantastic ideas for urban planning and what he wanted to do to make sure that he maintained uh, some natural space, some green space, and also did some urban planning that really thought through how to do things. And that's really not so different than what Olmsted was doing and uh, Vanderbilt and his architect were doing in terms of what they were building in, uh, in the space near Asheville. They had this idea to build something that was really kind of neat and unique, and it was kind of, uh, kind of that urban planning sort of sense. And Disney had that same sort of feeling when he started thinking about his Epcot. How do you build an experimental prototype city or community? How do you build that? And what do you put there? You're going to have some green space and you're going to have some industrial space and you're going to have some housing and you're going to have some other things. But you need to put all of those things together and make it cohesive. So I just find that interesting that it kind of ties back to it. And uh, he had these ideas for how to make things actually look like uh, they belonged, right? And make it, make it feel like it actually fit together in some way. Oh, but, you know, the stories don't quite end there. There was an, another um, thing that happened, and this didn't, didn't actually happen on my vacation, but I was, as I was on vacation, I was just flipping through the news, and I read about this interesting thing. This this interactive gargoyle that they put on display at the uh, Denver airport. Now, the Denver airport is a unique space, and they've got all kinds of weird things, and they talk about all this, um, this underground layer because they built an airport on top of an airport, and it's, so, it's supposed to have some mystery and intrigue to it. They built on that story. And it's, in a way, the way they built a story around an airport is not so different from what Disney has done in the Disney space as far as building a story around a theme park and um, creating something that's really unique. So they have this gargoyle that they opened up, I guess it was about a month or so ago. And he sits on a perch on a pedestal in the, uh, I believe it's in the departures area. 
And as guests walk by, or airport passengers walk by, the gargoyle springs to life and starts talking to people and will actually interact with them. And it has facial expressions and is emotive and does different things. And it's really, really cool. When you watch the video, it's like, whoa, man, that's awesome. Now, I heard someone suggest that perhaps this is some AI or artificial intelligence or machine learning thing that's actually growing on this. But I disagree. I watched the video kind of closely. I watched it a couple of times. And I'm fairly certain that there's some connection to Disney in here. So Disney has um, Turtle Talk with Crush and the Monsters, Inc. Last Floor. And both of those are interactive type experiences that people think may be some sort of AI or something, but they're not. They're actually actors working backstage who can actually act out the parts that are in the scenes. So they're doing, the, they're doing things and it's, they're actually acting. They're, um, they're telling stories, they're telling jokes, they're relating things to people, they're, they're interacting with the crowd, but they are actually there interacting with the crowd. And there's some things they do that allow for some mechanical sort of um, things that they can, they can emote through the, uh, the characters that are on the screen. So by moving certain controls, they can make it smile or make it, you know, make it roll or do something or walk back and forth on the stage. And it's, it's a technically really detailed thing that they're able to do where they're actually able to move back and forth and uh, make, these, make these creatures come to life in some way. So it's very, very clever, and it does give you the feeling like there's some artificial intelligence, but it is actually acted. And I know this for a fact at the Monsters in Glass Floor and the uh, Turtle Talk with Crush that they're actually actors who are doing this part. And I believe there's no story that's told me this so far, and I haven't found anyone who can corroborate this, but I believe that this is actually what's happening at the uh, Denver airport with the gargoyle. I believe that it's using the same fundamental technology Disney has a proprietary piece of technology that they built. They hired a bunch of programmers to actually build this and then have some mechanical pieces that allow for interaction with the, uh, the graphics and some of the things that go on. I believe that they're actually doing the same thing. And Disney either built this for them or licensed the technology to them because I, I, I find it hard to believe that the Denver airport funded something quite like this on their own. But I can't find any evidence to support that. So if anyone knows anything, let me know. I'm still looking for information about it. I just think it's such a cool thing and I have to believe it's connected to Disney in some way. It's certainly the same use of the technology. Maybe they built it themselves. I guess it's a possibility. But it's really cool that they, uh, that they have this, this feature there. And I just wanted to share that with you because I happened to see this while I was on vacation. I didn't fly through the airport. I kind of wish I had just so I could have seen it. But uh, we drove to uh, North Carolina, so I didn't get a chance to see that there. And then connecting one more story to, to Disney in North Carolina. North Carolina has a, uh, the ability to sell um, THC. That's the uh, compound that's found in marijuana. And uh, they have the ability to sell it over the counter because of the laws that they have in that state. So uh, there's, um, it's available. It's readily available pretty much anywhere you go. It's a THC oil that you can get. And people use it for medicinal reasons. And they use it for other reasons too. Um, but it was interesting. There was a story about a grandmother who came down with her grandkids to Disney World. And she had a vial of the THC in her, in her bag and security caught it and they saw it in there and they're like, what is this? So they called, um, they called one of the uh, sheriff, sheriff's deputies over to uh, actually look at it with them. And the sheriff's deputy was like, you know, this looks like it could be THC. Now in Florida, the laws are different. The laws are that you can have a prescription for medical marijuana under very specific criteria and you have to have the prescription with you. So the lady was like, well, uh, you know, it's uh, something I was prescribed by my doctor and she wouldn't answer any other questions about it. 
And so the uh, policeman made it clear that he was going to test it for THC. And of course it came back as positive for THC. So she was arrested because she was in possession of something without a doctor's prescription. Something that's marginally legal in Florida, but she didn't have the prescription for it. So she was arrested um, right there at the security gate. I believe she was going into the Magic Kingdom, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and um, kind, of a, kind of an interesting thing that happened. Uh, and excuse me, it was, um, it was CBD oil. It's a, um, it's CBD is another compound that's similar to THC. But it was actually CBD oil she had. But it test, did test positive for, the, uh, for um, the, uh, marijuana and THC. So that's why she was arrested. Um, so it was kind of interesting. Um, you know, she was going into the parks and she was arrested and taken away. Um, and, um, she was, uh, um, she was arrested for possession of hashish, um, and, uh, released on a $2,000 bail. And then, um, she had the uh, charges dropped later when they kind of went through the case. They're like, there, we have nothing to hold her on because, you know, she bought it in another state. Yes, she brought it here, blah, blah, blah. It was a very you know, complicated thing that they had to work through. So they decided to just let it go. Um, and um, she was saying that she had really bad arthritis and that's why she got it in the first place because it helps her, you know, and whatever her reasons are, I'm, you know, I'm not going to get into that. And I don't, you know, the law is the law, whatever it is. But I thought, found it interesting that the laws from state to state can come back to bite you. So as you go into the theme parks, you know, my tip to you is always be careful what you're bringing in with you. You know, bringing in um, any kind of drugs, whether they're legal or illegal, um, can get you into a lot of trouble. So make sure that if you do have a prescription drug, you either have it in the prescription bottle where it talks about what it is, or you have your prescription for it so that you can actually, or the, the appropriate doctor's um, notes that go with it so that you can uh, go through security. You know, it's one of those things. And also, you know, other weapons and other firearms are not permitted in the parks. In fact, they tell you that. And so you want to make sure that you don't have that stuff with you because it will only cause trouble. You will get held up. You will actually be stopped. There are different levels of security. Some are seen, some are unseen. There's always the Orange County sheriffs standing around waiting to help out and assist if anything comes up. And they do call them over if they need to. They'll take you off to the side and they'll, they'll, the sheriff's deputy will talk to you about whatever you have there. So my advice to you is, as, as a listener, be, be conscientious of that. You know, don't just bring it in because, well, you know, I have this and it's okay. You know, think about what you're doing sometimes. You have to kind of take a step back and go, what am I doing? Am I bringing this in? What is, what is this I'm bringing in? You know, I feel bad for the lady. That's kind of a sucky way to have your vacation go that you, um, you bring something with you and you wind up getting kicked out of Disney World. So there you go. You know, that was sort of my story of what was going on on my vacation. It was kind of an interesting little thing where I tied back so many things to Disney. As always, there's always a way to tie things back to Disney World. It was just, I found it interesting and kind of compelling in a way. Where as I'm watching things and looking at things, you know, I start to see something and I go, wow, that's, that's really amazing because it feels like Disney World. You know, one of the other things that happened to us while we were in the park, in the National Park, we're going along and we're, um, we're doing, you know, doing different things. And my kids were doing the, uh, the Junior Park Ranger badge. They love getting those. So we're doing the badge to get that. And we come to one point and one of the things they said was you have to um, collect some trash from, from the parks and bring it in and show them that you're collecting trash. You have to be a good citizen. And for whatever reason, the places we went, because we didn't spend a lot of time at the visitor centers, we went around to different places and just went you know, on some of the trails and whatever. And we honestly didn't see much trash, which is great. I'm very happy to see that. But we go back and they're like, no, 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 you have to actually bring us trash. That's, that's part of the rules. It's like, wow. She goes, so she gives us the tip, just go outside the visitor center and just walk around for a few minutes. You'll find some trash, you can bring it back. 
And we did. And we did find trash there, and that was fine. And, it, you know, I'm glad to clean up trash. Don't get me wrong. And I think it's good for the kids to see that. But it's interesting how, you know, you go to certain places. Disney is so immaculate. You never find trash anywhere because they're always cleaning it up. And here, on the trails and so forth, I never saw any. But there at the visitor center, there was some trash on the ground. It was just miscellaneous items people had discarded and whatever. Didn't use the trash bins. And uh, kind of interesting. Um, you know, just funny how that goes. Uh, sometimes you just, some, sometimes those things happen. Those things happen. So interesting, you know, kind of, kind of fun. We, uh, we had a good time. Um, really, really neat. Um, we went into the city of Asheville. Asheville is an interesting sort of, I don't know, it's, it's, a, it's an eclectic town. It's got, you know, a lot of different types of people there. They're very inclusive and very interesting. And, you know, there's an artist guild and there's a lot of vegetarian restaurants and there's a lot of interesting things there going on. And it's, it's, it's up in the mountains. And I hope I'm not giving away any secrets and people start going there because I would love to go back and, you know, it was not crowded and it was just beautiful. Um, and it's easily accessible and it's easy to get to a lot of different places from there. So it was really nice to, to go and visit, and I would definitely go back um, just because, you know, here it is. It's summertime, and it's, you know, in the mid-90s here in, in South Florida. And up there, it was temperature. If the temperatures hit the mid-80s, it was, it was warm. And it was like, wow, this is kind of awesome. I love this. Um, I can imagine that in the wintertime, it's a little bit colder. Um, but as I understand it, it's a little bit temperate, too. So uh, kind of an interesting thing. And I almost forgot to mention, I did almost forget to mention this. I was just, I glanced down at the pictures I have. And it turns out that there was this one falls we went to. And uh, the falls were actually... So we went up to, um, we went up in the mountains and we were going along at these, um, at this one set of falls. And uh, it's actually up in the Smoky Mountains. And as we went up there, the interesting thing was I'm going along and we're looking at the falls and you could see at one point you could actually see the backside of water because you were coming around the side of the falls and you could actually see where the falls were coming off and you were on the backside of water. Always fun to see that. A little Disney joke in there somewhere. And um, I was watching this one group. There's a, there was a little bit of a lake there at the bottom of the falls. Not very deep or anything, but there was a couple of people who were trying to swim through the falls to go to the backside of water and they kept trying to swim through it and uh, they kept running into trouble because the current was so strong uh, relatively speaking, because of the falls, or the falls themselves were hard to kind of push through, so they couldn't get through it. And they tried several different ways, but they never actually made it through it. So they actually wound up, wound up swimming to the side, climbing on some rocks, and then coming around and being on the backside of water. And the guy was standing back there, and he's giving the thumbs up, and I'm like, he's at, he's at the backside of water, the world-famous backside of water. And I just thought that was really funny, because they were actually trying to get there. And I was like, hey, that's pretty cool, another Disney connection. So there you go. That is my podcast for this week, and I hope you've enjoyed it. And uh, I hope you're doing something fun this summer, something memorable, some family vacation, something else you're doing, whether you're going to Disney World or anywhere else. Always remember to have fun, right? Make the most of it. Take, you know, make the most of your time. Enjoy yourself because, you know, these are family experiences and they're shared experiences. And we're going to talk about that, the, the herd of elk that we saw. And we'll talk about the bear we saw by the side of the road who was maybe 10 yards away from us. You know, things like that, you just remember because they were so exciting and interesting and you don't see that every day. We, we actually went into a place up in uh, Asheville where it was a, a glass blowing factory and the guy was blowing glass and he was showing us how to blow glass and he was teaching us something. I'm like, this is so cool. I've watched this on video before, but I've never seen anybody do this. And again, maybe, maybe akin to the crystal arts, you know, when you're in uh, Disney World in downtown Disney or Disney Springs now, when you walk around and you see somebody blowing glass there. Very cool. You know, they're making glass from, from 
from the sand. And it's just so amazing. And they're making these beautiful things, these objects of art. And the science behind it and the artistry of it all just makes it worthwhile to sit there and watch it for half an hour. And that's what's cool about it. And those are the experiences that stick with you. So I hope you have a good experience too on your next trip, wherever you decide to go. And uh, for the moment, I guess that's going to do it for my Disney-related podcast. So remember, if we can dream it, we can certainly do it. Bye now. Thank you for tuning in to the Disney View Podcast. We hope you had a pleasant stay and arrive home safely. Please remain seated until your ride vehicle stops completely. Then, gather your personal belongings and step out onto the moving platform. And yes, I know it went by so quickly, but don't worry. One of the nice things about traveling on this podcast is that the journey is just beginning. Show notes are available on DisneyWorldPodcast.net. While there... Please check out some of our affiliates. You'll also find links to Dave's iPhone and iPad apps. There's an app for pin trading, one for finding hidden Mickeys, and an app for finding and tracking pressed pennies around the Walt Disney World Resort. And you never know just what Dave is working on next. If you have questions, feel free to drop Dave an email at davesdisneyview at gmail.com. Original music you're hearing in this podcast is Oslo Doom by Gilberto Gil. Of course, this is a fan podcast and in no way affiliated with the Walt Disney Company. 